of them brownies back there, okay? So I'm not up here after the service. I'll be back there trying to gain a few pounds. Bikini season's coming up. Mine was a little loose yesterday, so. <laughs> We're continuing in a series uh, on the serenity prayer. And the question that we're asking here over the coming weeks is basically how can we hope to have any serenity or any peace of mind when we're forced to live in a fallen world? And one of the places we're looking to here in this series is looking to a classic prayer that's come to be known as a serenity prayer, and we're picking our way through it and trying to glean some things out of here that hopefully can help us to file things in a way where we can live in this world and still find some peace of mind. If I can think of this under pressure, the entire serenity prayer goes something like this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Christ did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it be, so that I might be reasonable, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, so that I might be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Great prayer. Oh, yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't choke. <laughs> But, and Mike, of course, is going back in history and getting a little bit of a variation on that prayer, a little different than the way I was taught it, but still the essential elements are exactly the same. And, you know, so this series that we would call the Serenity Prayer, I would call continuing in a series of Mark's hypocrisy, <laughs> because as we know, it's now become kind of a running joke out here that the only two topics that I seem to land on when I have opportunities to teach, one of them is I'm usually talking about the stuff like that has to do with mental illness or, you know, deviations. I did that, had to do one time, you know, Mike gives me this thing on uh, orgies and drunkenness, which was really great. <laughs> you know, I know some things about drunkenness, the orgies, I, my invitation always seemed to get lost in the mail. I, but, uh, and if we're not doing things on weird stuff like that, I seem to land on things that I really honestly know very little about, that I really don't feel like I manifest very much of in my own life. Like, you know, we did one thing on friendship, and as I've often said, I don't always consider myself to be the best friend out there because the people I love the most often get the least of me. And... You know, and that's continuing because now, ironically, in this series, we're talking about not one but two things <laughs> that I really can't talk down from the mountaintop about because we're talking about both courage and change. Now, I don't consider myself to be a very courageous person. Uh, and part of it is if you were to ask me if I'm courageous, uh, I might on more honestly have to answer I don't know. Because I don't feel I've ever really had my metal tested. Uh, there are people in this room that have, and they have come through with flying colors, and I respect that very highly. We have uh, men and women in here that have served in the military, that have 
fought in uh, wars and fought in battles on the behalf of our country. We have people in here that work in the fire department and law enforcement that face death and danger on a daily basis. We've got people in here that have faced courageous personal battles with illness and disease and that have undergone tremendous struggles in that regard. People that have had business and financial reversals that have plowed their way through it. So, you know, I really don't have any claims to fame like that. I I wish I did, but uh, I really don't consider myself, you know, to have a lot of courage. Uh, I've never been in battle. I've never had to survive in federal prison. <laughs> I've never had an opportunity to foil a liquor store holdup, uh, never saved a family out of a burning building. Uh, you know, like I'm reminded of people, other people that are great in battle, like uh, the world's possibly best martial artist, Bruce Lee, you know, except for maybe Chuck Norris. <laughs> you know, I play both sides of the field. It's kind of like you can either like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. You know, people are divided. Some people are cat people. Some are dog people. Some people are Bruce Lee. Some are team uh, Chuck Norris. But, you know, Bruce Lee, one of I learned that one of the secrets of his success in fighting was he actually developed his very own form of the martial arts. And the reason he was so good was because he had no defensive moves. His theory was, if you're getting hit, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and the best way to win a fight is don't go in there and take any punches. So every move that he used was offensive. And obviously it worked pretty good for him. I actually thought that made a lot of sense. So back in the day, I actually developed my own form of uh, fighting, you know, the Lauritsen method. And, you know, what I would do if somebody got in my face was, you know, and, you know, really wanted some of this, usually I'd take my face and I would hit him in the fist about a dozen times. <laughs> and then I'd take my crotch and I'd hit him in the knee a couple of times. And fortunately, at that point, my buddies were usually there to pull me out from under the guy before I killed him. <laughs> so that's how it worked for me. So I'm not really claiming to know a lot about courage. And on the flip side, I'm not really claiming to know a lot about change either. Because my wife, Sherry, will testify to this. Four words she, I know she's never heard out of, come out of my mouth is, hey, let's change this. <laughs> I'm not that guy. I, I moved into an apartment years ago and lived there for two years. When I moved in, I leaned different pictures against the wall where I thought they should hang. Never hung. <laughs> two years later, I move out. I take the pictures right where I set them when I moved in and stacked them up and went to the next place. I, I'm just not a changey kind of a guy. And if you really want to more evidence of that, just, you know, or anybody for that matter, look in their sock drawer. <laughs> I've got socks going back to high school. <laughs> and even worse, don't, you don't even want to go in the underwear drawer. <laughs> you know, Sherry was digging around in there one time and goes, how come you have so many thongs? I mean, <laughs> they didn't start out as thongs. <laughs> they, they used to be boxers, and then they became briefs. <laughs> but you got to put a positive spin on it, right? So I tell her, look, baby, you got to look at it this way. I said, 
I have had longer-term relationships with my fruit of the looms than most people have with their current spouse. <laughs> I know how to commit. <laughs> so, so when it comes to change, also, I'm not, I'm not somebody that knows a lot about change or is the guy to usually initiate it. So, you know, but I am, I think, a pretty good before example. <laughs> so if you want to talk about the antithesis, of courage to change the things we can and should, then I believe the opposite of courage is fear. And I could write several books when it comes to fear. Because some people gravitate towards anger and others gravitate towards fear. It's the same in the animal kingdom, fight or flight. Uh, some people uh, get mad and some people run away. Just like, uh, you know, some people worry, some people complain anger or fear, but between those two extremes, I think personally I've always tended to gravitate a little more towards fear. And even as a kid, I worried about things that most kids my age didn't seem to worry about. I worried about things like, what are you going to do if a killer wanders in off the interstate and whacks mom and dad? <laughs> we lived 17 miles off the interstate, <laughs> but it could happen, you know, <laughs> so I'd always think about worst-case scenarios, what might happen, what could go wrong, and, and then I'd try to find solutions for that. But it was always very neurotic and very based in fear. And, and one of the things about fear, there's three acronyms that I've picked up over the years that really seem to summarize fear in a nutshell. The first two are more our human reactions to it. The first one is F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. One of the truths about fear is that most of the things we worry about aren't going to happen. A lot of the things we worry about can't happen. But that doesn't matter when we're in fear. Everything we worry about at that moment seems like it's 100% true and 100% based in reality. But the fact about fear is, one of them, is that fear is almost always based in some form of deception, some form of lie, some form of worst-case scenario. The second acronym that I like is the result of that fear, F-E-A-R, is forget everything and run. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how we can know so much stuff and believe so much stuff, but when the scary thing shows up at our doorstep, we can throw everything we know, everything we believe out the window and just run or make bad decisions. And you see, and there again, the nature of fear is it often drives us into action, but it drives us in the wrong direction. Other times, it doesn't drive us to move at all. It's just the opposite. It paralyzes us, so we can't do anything at all. And either way, we're not doing what we need to do in regards to fear, because the third acronym that I like is more positive, F-E-A-R, face everything and recover. Because I used to believe that if I prayed right, God would somehow remove fear. So I used to say things like, Lord, I have to deal with this thing. Please remove my fear so I can act, so I can face this thing. And those prayers, unfortunately, didn't really seem to work. 
until later somebody explained perhaps there's a better thing to ask for. It was, Lord, please help me to act in spite of this fear. And I learned that in taking action, in facing these things, by not being paralyzed, by having God give me the strength and the willingness to act in spite of fear, then and only then did the fear start to go away. So if I'm going to wait and not do anything until I'm not afraid anymore, uh, I have a feeling I'm going to be waiting a long, long time because that fear never seemed to go away. And so that was another thing, you know, a simple acronym that really helped me find a better way of, of seeing fear for what it is. And there's another facet to fear also that I really found very interesting, and it has to do with the very nature of fear itself. Because I didn't always understand exactly the mechanics of fear or how the deception played out with it in my own head. See, because well, I think we've seen those bumper stickers that say stuff happens or something similar. <laughs> and I believe that's true. And my, I used to think the way fear worked is stuff happens and then Mark gets scared. Sure. But it was taught to me that it's really exactly the opposite in a lot of cases. I get scared and then stuff happens. <laughs> because part of the insidious nature of fear is that it actually causes things to go wrong. It's like it's not the fear isn't the last domino to drop in that string of dominoes. It often is the first. Because we're afraid, we make bad decisions, and then those bad decisions lead to bad consequences. Now, when they first taught me that, I got paranoid <laughs> because I thought, wait a minute, are you telling me that if I worry about something, I'm just going to conjure the very thing that I'm worried about? Well, now i got to worry about that. But they said, no, this isn't superstition. It's a lot more practical than that. Because, you know, and we all know, you know, we've said it many times, it's bad luck to be superstitious. <laughs> so, but, uh, but it's not superstition at all. Because the way fear actually works is when fear starts, I make decisions, but they're often bad decisions that are not based in logic, reason, or truth. They're bad decisions based in how can I avoid pain. A textbook example of that is people that have bad teeth, but what are they afraid of? They're afraid of going to the dentist. See, they should be more afraid of not going to the dentist. <laughs> but that fear of pain is the very thing that drives them away from the solution instead of closer towards it. There's a few great Example, you know, to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. And the best one I've ever heard has to do with a couple of old farmers that lived years ago down where I came from in Turner County. These old guys uh, lived out on a rural acreage, and uh, they had outlived most of their family members. So both through hard work and inheritance, they ended up accumulating a lot of property. A lot of farmland, they worked it very hard, and as a result of that, they also accumulated with a lot of money. But they had a fear. They were afraid of banks. And they were afraid that if they put their money in a bank, that somehow the bank would lose their money. And that wasn't, like all fears, there's always an element of truth there. 
because their uh, parents had survived the Great Depression, where back then they did lose money in the banks. If a bank went broke, money was gone. So out of that fear turning into um, perhaps some paranoia, they ended up deciding, well, we don't trust banks. We don't want to lose our money. So they, instead of putting it in the bank, they put it in a safe in their living room. And they had accumulated over $100,000 in cash. Well, eventually a couple of young punks in town learned that these old guys were sitting on all this cash, so they drove out there one night, and they took their cash and killed them. So their fear of losing their money caused them, ironically, to not only lose their money, but lose their lives, too. But what was the first domino to tip? Fear. And the fear caused bad decisions that ended up with bad consequences. A second example of that is uh, if anybody ever feared losing a relationship. How do people act when, they're, when they become unreasonably paranoid about their girlfriend or boyfriend leaving them? Are they fun to be around? Are they spontaneous? Hey, baby. No. When relationships are based in fear, all of a sudden people become clingy and possessive and they start stalking and all of a sudden they're, you know, watching them and asking them a hundred times in ten minutes, where were you? Why did it take so long to go to the store? You know, you have another boyfriend, you know, and, and just on and on. And eventually, you know, you chain them to the bed when you go to work or whatever. And, and I guess that's illegal. And, and then, you know, restraining orders get filed. But you see, in a case like that, what is the first domino to tip? It's fear that they're going to leave. And what's the end result? They have to leave. Because the fear of them leaving, ironically, causes bad decisions that culminate in them doing the very thing you didn't want them to do. Here's a third example. Do you ever work with somebody that's unreasonably afraid of losing their job? You know, when I was in middle management, I dealt with a lot of people like that. And, again, those guys didn't just show up and go to work and do their job. They spent about 38 hours of their week playing office politics, trying to get the other guy fired instead of them. So it was always the blame game, always complaining, always trying to show how much they were doing versus how little the others were doing. And The relationships at work were very competitive. And a lot of times when people became so afraid of losing their job, you had to fire them because they weren't doing their job. So that fear ironically caused the very thing that they didn't want to happen the most. Yet another example, you ever get behind somebody in traffic that's afraid of wrecking their car? <laughs> they cause accidents, don't they? You know, I can't remember how many times I'm just, you know, gently cruising down the interstate at like 112, and... <laughs> Somebody's driving down I-29 like it's another street in Sioux Falls. They still think it's speed limit 30. And, and But people that are so afraid of getting in an accident often get into accidents because of the way they drive. They can't keep up with, with traffic. Or another example is uh, if you worry too much about your health, what's going to happen? You just might worry yourself sick. So... You know, it's things like that that uh, that illustrate what, I'm, what we're talking about here, the insidious nature of fear. 
and how it opens up opportunities for deception where we can start making things worse instead of better. So for that reason, what we really need to counteract fear is courage. And courage turns out not to be the absence of fear so much as the ability to act in spite of it and the ability to make sane, logical, truth-based decisions in spite of it. And that's a little bit of what we're looking at here today. It's, inter it's always been interesting to me that if you study the Bible, Old and New Testament, most of it is written in war terms. They use terms like, uh, they refer to us as soldiers, be a good soldier for Christ and fight the good fight. And they put on the full armor of God and they talk about the battle and the battle lines being drawn and, and all of these things. And I'm thinking, why is it that Today, in the modern church, so often we try to portray Christ and his followers as total pacifists. You know, trying to portray Christ more as Gandhi than Jesus. Because why would God refer to us as soldiers if we weren't supposed to fight? I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. Christianity is a fighting religion. That doesn't mean we're just out there butting heads unnecessarily with people. But what it does mean is you can't negotiate with terrorists. And the biggest original terrorist of all is the devil. And one of his main weapons that he uses is terror, fear. And that fear, ironically, isn't just a fear of horrible things happening to us. It can be something as, fear, as minute as fear of humiliation. You know, we covered that last year in a series where we talked a little bit about Peter, how one day he was standing up, you know, telling Jesus, you know, I'm willing to go with you to, you know, to, to prison and to death. And only a few hours later, he wimps out and he's, people asked him three times if they even knew him. And he goes, no, I don't even know the man. And his fear wasn't a prison or death. I think his fear was a fear of humiliation. He didn't want to look bad in front of these people because he was a bit of an egomaniac. <laughs> and his fear that got him wasn't a fear of the big deals. It was a fear of something that some would call the littlest deal. Just didn't, you know, I'll go to prison, I'll die, but I don't want to look bad. <laughs> I want to look good doing it. <laughs> and so that fear, that little poke of fear was enough to change his entire direction. And it's the same thing with us. You know, a lot of times it's not even the big deals that terrify me the most because, like, I'm a perfectionist, and I'll do about anything to avoid that little sinking feeling that I get going from here to here when I do something wrong. And I'll do nothing rather than do something that might fail or might look bad, so I'll just do anything to avoid that simple sinking feeling. Oh, man, I screwed that up. So something like that, or a fear of speaking up. You know, I, we live in this politically correct society today where there's so much fear about speaking the truth. There's so much fear about being honest with each other. There's so much pressure to just not call things what they are. And it, it's crazy how effective that is in our society as a whole, where we have been 
I'm going to use the word conned into believing that somehow it's so bad for us to simply tell the truth. Because I was taught, you know, some people say the truth hurts. I disagree. I don't think the truth ever hurt anybody. I think it's lies that kill people. And I think if lies are the germs that cause every ill of mankind, then the truth must be the antidote. That we live in a world that doesn't want the antidote. So with that in mind, you know, I believe that, you know, the Bible referring to us as fighters and soldiers and commanding us to fight evil, to oppose it, because we can't negotiate with it. We're not there to convert evil. We're there to convert people, but not evil itself, because there's no hope of that. So we really need the tools to fight and fight effectively. And that's why when it comes to dealing with fear, is any, anybody, have you ever worried about something? You told somebody what you were afraid of and you got that pat answer, well, just don't worry about it. <laughs> don't you love that? <laughs> oh, just don't worry about it. You know, don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> don't worry. Be happy. And, you know, it just doesn't, you know, it sounds great, but how do you do that? You know, I think it was Steven Tyler of Aerosmith one time. He said, you know, just say no. That's like saying cheer up to a manic depressive, you know. No, just cheer up. You know, it doesn't work. And it's the same by telling people to not worry about something. And you, and at first glance, it looks like the Bible does the same thing. I can show you literally hundreds of times in the Bible, Old and New Testament, where God or his messengers, the angels, showed up, and the first thing they told people is fear not. But the interesting thing is, then it goes on in the Bible to say why. And that's the part we often miss. Why shouldn't I worry? Why do I not have to worry? Is there a switch I missed up here someplace that turns fear off? I mean, I used to find that missing switch in the bottom of every Porta Cuervo Gold Tequila, you know, but that's liquid courage, you know, and it worked while it worked, but, you know, there's like a friend of mine often says, there's a reason why they call it liquid courage and not liquid intelligence. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, that's not really courage either. That's just stupidity. <laughs> but so is there a missing switch here for fear? And you see, I think the right answer is yes and no, because I think that God does give us things. So we don't have to worry. And that's what I focused on in our worship bulletin today. And there are, I could give you a whole list of reasons why, as Christians, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear anymore. But I focused on five. I, you know, not because these are the best, but because they all started with the letter P. <laughs> and I knew that Mike Godet would be proud. He likes his alliteration. <laughs> uh, but just off the top, five reasons why Christians don't have to worry anymore. God gives us power, peace, his presence, provision, and protection. And if you look at some of these verses, the first thing is power. You see, we are fully aware of our own weakness. And I don't think God is invested in making us strong. If you go back into what uh, Paul wrote, he said, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm not going to brag about my strength. I'm going to brag about my weakness. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. 
We don't have to be strong in and of ourselves. What we have to do is manifest God's strength through it. Uh, Mike compared it one time to going into a jewelry store, and the reason they set that diamond on a black felt background is because it's that background that magnifies the brilliance of the diamond. And in the same way, God has often chosen some of the most unlikely people, the unlikeliest of messengers, to work with and through. So when we accomplish things, people look at us and they go, I know that's not him. It's got to be something more than him. It's got to be God working through this person to do what they did. And when you see spiritual strength manifested, you know it, because it's not in the person's body or their own spirit that they're able to conjure that much strength. So God gives us power. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The second thing God gives us is peace. You see, I don't have to worry because even though we got stuff going on out here, I can have peace inside. And you go, well, how can those two coexist? Well, it's easy to understand once you see how they always coexisted in the opposite sense. Even when things were calm out here, it wasn't calm in here. It could be really loud in here even when things were good. And sometimes I got so tired of waiting for the other shoe to drop or for the wrench to fall into the works, I'd throw it in myself just to get it over with. Because I just can't, I hate waiting, <laughs> you know. So let's just if it's going to blow up, let's get her over with, you know, and deal with it. Because I'd rather have my demons out here where I can see them instead of back here where I can't. So I would rather have my problems be external, and that's why. Oftentimes, it was easier to deal with stuff out here. and But if I can have trouble in here with calm out here, why can't it be the other way around? Maybe I can have trouble out here, and it can be calm in here. And that's how God gives us peace in spite of the fear. You know, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. But why don't I have to be afraid? Because we have God's peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The third thing that God gives us, and I think this might be the biggest thing, is presence. Not presence as in gifts. We get those too, spiritual gifts. But God's presence, meaning as Christians, we are never, ever, ever alone. And as the great minister Malcolm Smith pointed out one time, blew my mind. I know I've said this many times, but it's still cool. But Malcolm Smith says, do you ever realize when you're worried, you're projecting yourself into some dark, scary, unknown future event, and you're imagining yourself facing down this demon or this dragon, you know, or you're David facing down this Goliath in your future, 
But he said, did you ever realize in those imaginings in your mind that you're always alone? There's nobody else there. God isn't there in that neurotic fantasy. My friends aren't there. My family's not there. I don't have some support group there. God's protective angels aren't there. I'm all alone. It's just me. And you see, that's the deception when it comes to this illusion that somehow in some future event, it's just going to be us all alone dealing with God. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Because not only is God always with us, but the Bible also says this curious thing. He says, I will be with you closer than a brother. Well, the closest a brother can get is maybe, you know, up to you. You know, I've, I've never hugged my brother. That would be creepy. <laughs> but he did grab me a lot of times, but usually to throw me down the stairs or something. But, you know, but that's about as close as he could get, you know, is, is right there. But uh, how do you get closer than that? But you see, God is closer than that because he's not just with us. He is in us. Because through his spirit, not only are we not alone out here, we're never alone in here either. And that's the real point of Christianity, the mystery of the gospel, Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And sometimes we forget that too, is that we're not alone in here. God is with us 24 hours a day. And and that is great news because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And there again, you see how it ties not being afraid, in this case, with God's presence. The fourth thing is provision. See, we often worry about, oh man, where's that? You know, we're living paycheck to paycheck, and where am I going to live, and how am I going to pay the bills, and where's all this going to come from? And and the Bible is very clear to indicate that God will provide for our needs. Now, he's not, unfortunately, invested in providing my wants, but the reason is simple. My wants are insatiable. The only thing that my lower nature knows is the word more. More. More of everything. Enough is never enough to that to the flesh. And that's why the secret of peace of mind often is not feeding that, but starving it. Uh, I think it was Ogmandino. I don't even know who that is, but he had a great quote. He said, uh, true security does not lie in how much you have, but in how much you can live without. See, the most secure people out there, ironically, aren't the people in mansions that have, you know, Ten years supply of food and water and, you know, AK-47s and all that. You know, that looks pretty good. <laughs> but uh, but even more, the people that are living in the street that have nothing, ironically, are more secure because they know how to survive with nothing. Janis Joplin, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. But Sometimes God will provide more, but sometimes God helps us to live on less. And somewhere meeting in the middle, our needs are always met. Because we think, you know, if you look back, 
one of the things that really blew my mind was somebody taught me one time, if you want to see the grace of God, don't ask yourself what happened. Ask yourself what didn't happen. What could have happened that didn't? Because fate is 50-50. If you flip a coin a hundred times, the law of mathematics applies. And it'll be half heads, half tails. But if we, any one of us looks back over our lives, you can see how the odds are so tipped in our favor. It's not, yeah, you know, so we had some bad things happen in our life, but how many bad things didn't happen that could have, should have happened? Oh, you had some car wrecked. How many times could you have wrecked your car? Or you got arrested. Well, how many times did you break the law? Or you caught a disease. How many diseases were you exposed to that you didn't get? You know, or or whatever trouble it is. But when we start to look on balance, I think most of us would agree that God was never more active in our life than before we got here. Because that's when we needed him the most. Had he not always been there and intervened on our behalf, we wouldn't have made it this far. So, that's another good thing to remember when it comes to provision. When have we ever not had enough to make it through the day? Now, I might not have enough to make it through next week, but, you know, one day at a time, I just have to make it until midnight. Tomorrow's another day. And I know I have enough provision to give us this day our daily bread. And finally, it's about protection. Because we are protected as Christians. We really are. Now, sometimes it doesn't seem that way, but the protection and provision that God gives us, we have to remember, is more eternal than that. You know, yeah, somebody could kill us, but then what happens? Go to heaven, new body, you know, live forever, total peace. Well, is that such a bad deal? You know, so God's solution isn't to take us out of this world in the respect that he's not going to insulate us from all pain and problems yet. But the long-term solution is, will he do that? You betcha. Because it's not that, uh, it's not that bad things can't happen to us, but whatever happens to us down here is so temporary compared to forever. And that's the long-term solution that's already been implemented. So we are provided for and protected eternally, not just in the short term. And if you look back through this list, what we'll see is this all applies, I think, very well to soldiers going into battle. Because if I was going to war, I would really want these five things. And that's in the same way that God provides them. Imagine if you're going into battle as a soldier, would you want power? I would want to know that I'm strong. And I would want to know that my equipment is bigger than their equipment. I want to know that my guns are bigger than their guns. And I want strength, not just personal strength, but I want the biggest fighting force. I want the thickest tanks and the biggest ships and everything because power is the best, one of the better ways of guaranteeing victory. The same thing with peace. You know, why do they fight? Because we want peace, ultimately, not war. So the hope is for peace. And sometimes, if you're strong enough, you don't have to do battle. So peace through superior firepower. But you'd also need peace on the inside to have the confidence that, you know what, I am well-trained, I am well-armed, and 
you know, the odds are in my favor. I can do this. You need that confidence. And also presence. I wouldn't want to go into battle alone. And we don't have to. But to know that you've got guys that are equally well-armed and well-trained that have your six. You've got people on your flank. You've got people that you are with in battle. And you see that knowing that that presence, that you're never alone there either, and you're not going to get left behind that that also provides the confidence that people need and provision, knowing that those supply lines are open and knowing that there are people working in the background to make sure you have everything you need and protection. You know, I would want, you know, like it tells us in Ephesians, put on the full armor of God. You would no more play football professionally without gearing up. You know, can you imagine a player that would, thinks he's so tough he's not going to wear shoulder pads or a helmet or a cup or whatever it is they wear. I don't know. But, you know, I mean, all of these, they gear up for that. And it's the same thing in battle. You know, if you're going to go into law enforcement or, you know, the fire department or anything, you have safety equipment, and you're going to put it on. You'd be a fool not to. And it's the same way when Christians Go into battle spiritually. We need to put on that full armor of God because he provides good protection, but we need to avail ourselves of it. And the final part of this then is, okay, so if God's going to make us soldiers and like that old song they sang in the Presbyterian church growing up, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, Where are we marching to exactly? What exactly is it that God wants us to change? And you see, and that's where I think it really tells us a lot in the last chapter of Ephesians, where it says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against what? People? No, against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What's flesh and blood? People. See, when I go to do battle, who am I fighting? Them. (laughs) I'm fighting people. What does the Bible say to do? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And you see, it's so easy to get turned around and deceived into thinking my problem is people, when really the universal problem of mankind is deception, lies, manifested in defects of character. See, really the only problem I have with people is with their defects. If they didn't harbor resentments, if they weren't paranoid, if they weren't vengeful, if they, you know, weren't selfish and self-centered, if they weren't egotistical, I wouldn't have a problem with them. But really, when I think I have problems with certain people, what I really have problems with is the defects in them that are being manifested. To the degree that they have defects is the exact degree that I don't want to be around them. And the same thing applies to me. To the degree that I harbor defects of character, I am unattractive to people and ineffective working with them. So 
I think the real change, you know, and there are people that are trying to change the world. You know, we have a, the last couple of presidential elections. What did the guy run on? Change. <laughs> Open change. Now what's the new guy running on? Oh, I'm going to change it back. <laughs> you know, so, it, you know, there's all this changing going on, but the change that Christians, I think, crave more than changing the world. This world has problems that this world cannot solve. This world has problems that do not have a political solution because politics created some of those problems. The government isn't going to fix our problems because the government created some of those problems. So, but isn't it ironic that 2,000 years ago, when Christ showed up, what were they looking, what were the Jews hoping for in their Messiah? A spiritual leader? No. They wanted a military leader, and they wanted a political leader. They wanted to make him an earthly king in the lineage of other kings they had that were going to lead them into battle, defeat their enemies, restore prosperity, and somehow affect a political solution to their spiritual problem. And you see, Christ was a warrior. He was a fighter, but the battle he waged was not political or military, it was a battle against evil, a battle against the devil, a battle against deception. And I think similarly, you know what I think the hardest thing to change is? Ourselves. I think it's harder to change us than to change the world. You know what the hardest word I think in the Bible to pronounce is? I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce some of them Old Testament names and places. You know, I study the Bible occasionally with a friend of mine and, you know, we, you know, we come to those, we just mumble them out, you know, and then went to, and then they did, you know, I don't want to try to pronounce those things. But you know what I was taught the hardest word for most of us to pronounce is the word no. Father Rock, one of my old mentors, used to actually have people stand in front of a mirror looking at themselves and they were ordered to repeat the word no over and over and over again. No. He says, I don't know why that's such a hard word for us to pronounce, but sometimes we think, how hard is it to say no to people we should say no to? How many of us enable bad behavior because we just can't say no? Because we feel guilty or we feel like we owe them or that head kicks in and our lower nature beats us up. We know we should say no and we go, oh, But even harder than saying no to other people is saying no to ourselves. Saying no to our own desires. I want, I want. We're like these little three-year-old kids in our head. Gimme, 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 gimme. I want, I want, I want. Can I have it? Can I have this? And we just, it wears us down. And inside we go, yeah, okay. When really we need to say no to ourselves. To no to our desires. So I think really the courage that it takes to And what we need to focus our change on isn't so much as a change of the world as a change of heart. Ironically, there was two movements that started back in the early last century in the 20s and 30s that both dealt with alcohol abuse. One of them was Alcoholics Anonymous. The other was Prohibition. (laughs) Prohibition said, well, we can deal with everybody's alcohol problem. Let's make it illegal. (laughs) Okay. Now that's done. Next problem. How did prohibition work? (laughs) Prohibition gave rise to the mafia, organized crime. 
illegal activity like crazy. I mean, did people not drink because of prohibition? Well, you can't drink. It's illegal, right? Yeah. You know, we all know how well prohibition works. Conversely, Alcoholics Anonymous started, too, back in 1935, but they weren't anti-alcohol. You know, they weren't a temperance movement, and they weren't trying to burn down saloons or shut them down. They were just trying to take the customers away <laughs> for their own good. How did that work? Well, at least three million people will testify that worked pretty good because they're not in the bars and liquor stores anymore. And you see, what did AA change? Did they change the law? Did they bring back prohibition? No. They changed people's hearts, changed their desires. The miracle of AA isn't that people don't drink. It's that they don't want to drink. They don't need to drink anymore because everything they found in a bottle, they now find in God. And you see, that's... I think the more effective change that we're talking about here, you know, not changing the world, but changing us and changing other people's hearts one at a time. And whatever your deal is, you know, whatever cause you want to fight for, I think instead of just thinking by making it illegal, it's going to go away. I think it's more effective to change hearts and minds and take customers away. And we bring up the worship team and uh, we'll wrap this up brownies you're going to save for me and thank you lord for your peace of mind and for the serenity you give us lord to have peace in the midst of the storms of life in jesus name we pray amen